Well, this is the second week in a four-week series that we're doing. The series overall is called Our House. Our house meaning our church, victory. Now, when I use the word church, a lot of times we need to remember at least two things. One, it's not about a building, first of all. We're not referring to a building. Secondly, when we use the word church, it alone can have two different meanings. The church is the body of Christ. It doesn't matter about denominations, locations, ethnic, none of that matters. As long as the people have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that is Christ's church worldwide, the church. But then we are also called to a local church. So there will be times when I refer to the church, I'll be talking about victory and the victory family. And this week, the second one in our series here about our house, this church, victory, we're we're talking and focusing on four different values that we believe need to be and hopefully are present in Victory Church. And I think this week's is probably one of those four values that they're all should be close to our heart, but this one in particular is really of great importance to me, and it's being community. We're called to be a community. We're called, in my mind, to be the family at Victory. I tell people and talk about our church. I don't call it our church. I call it our family, the Victory family. And I believe we are called, and it's made very clear in Scripture, that we are called to community. A community. Now, what does it mean when we say community? I'm going to put up a couple of different definitions of what a community is. And there are numerous ways you could define community. The first one I see is a group of people living in the same place or having a particular characteristic in common. For example, we could say those that live in Ballaton are in the community of Ballaton or in Tracy or in Marshall. That's a community because they live in the same place. Absolutely true. Um, how close does that bond us together within that community? Well, that can really be a variable. I mean, there are so many people in the little community of Ballaton, I don't even know who they are. But we are part of that community. Or it can be a community based on something like your careers or the field that you're in. A community, a medical community. It could be a community of any organization. We could refer to that as a community. Again, maybe tightly united together, but maybe not so much. A second definition is a feeling of fellowship with others as a result of sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals. I would like to see us looking at ourselves as more that second definition, but even beyond that, looking at what the Word of God says about being a community, being the church, being Christ's church worldwide, and also being Christ's local church here in Victory. There is a German sociologist, and his name is Ferdinand Tonis. And I want to just read a comment or two that he made about community. He's a philosopher and a social sociology-type person, which I always hesitate to quote a lot of them. But I thought he had something interesting to say here in terms of community. He said, Community is perceived to be a tighter and more cohesive social entity when the con- within the context of a larger society, due to the presence of a unity of will, a community within this bigger context of society or culture, and they're united by a unity of will. And again, that can be in a secular world, in a secular community, but certainly true what I would believe in a Christian community, a unity of will. 
He added, I'm still quoting this German sociologist, he said that the family and kinship were the perfect expressions of community, but that other shared characteristics such as place or belief could also result in community. He added that family and kinship were a perfect example of community. Uh, I think he may have overstated when he used the word perfect. How many of us know our families aren't perfect? Neither is our churches. They're not perfect. But a couple of comments or statements that I think are so good at defining what I would hope we see in terms of community and what it means in the Victory family. First is this. If the sense of community truly exists, both freedom and security exist as well. Freedom and security. Freedom to be who we really are and feeling secure in that community of believers. Meaning we feel free to be who we are in the sense that not everybody's looking to judge us. Not everybody's looking to criticize us. Not everybody's looking for our flaws and very eager to point them out to make themselves feel better about who they think they are. We, we, we see a good, when there's a real sense of community, there's freedom and security, and that also people become free enough to share and secure enough to get along. Free enough to share. And I, I know a lot of quote-unquote communities where people aren't going to be real, they aren't going to feel safe enough to share what's really going on. Creating an atmosphere and an environment of community, of, of a sense of family, that, you know, that we can have people walk forward in the church service in a public setting to acknowledge they need prayer for something. Their lives aren't perfect. We don't want to put on this face on Sunday morning and dress the right way and look just perfect and then not do anything and not, not be willing to be transparent and vulnerable. We need to be safe, secure in such a way that we feel we can, we can share. We can be real with one another and know that we're loved, that we're cared for, that we have people who will stand with us. We're going to look this morning at a text that I think really helps us to understand what that really looks like. We're going to be looking in Ephesians, but before we go to the Scripture, we're going to be looking at Ephesians has uh, about six chapters. It's not a very big book. And it's clearly divided right in the middle. And those first three chapters, Gal, we should read those three chapters over and over and over and over. Pastor Bob this morning in adult Bible class went through a little bit of what in, what's in chapter 1. But chapter 1, 2, and 3, I, I want to just, I'm going to just read a few things very quickly. They're not going to be on the screen. These are all from the first three chapters. And they're all about this. You know, if someone asks you to do something, let's just say somebody comes up to you and, gee, they're almost relatively a stranger. Uh, you haven't had a lot of interaction with them. And they ask you to do something. The thought may come to mind like, why would I do that for you? Why should I do that? Well, sometimes we need to be reminded as Christians that God has an expectation and a great desire for the way that we're going to live our lives. And the desire is that our lives would be giving Him honor and glory. That's why we were created, to bring honor and glory to God. So sometimes we need to be reminded, what has He all really done for us? You know, I've heard people say, and I probably have thought this in my own life at different times, like, God, I've surrendered my life to you, 
but you don't seem to do anything in my life. You're not answering my prayers. We need to be reminded what he has really done for us. Listen to these. And I'm just going to go through quickly. 1 verse 3, blesses, he blesses us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Verse 4, he declares you and I holy and blameless before him. In verse 7, redemption was in his blood and the forgiveness of sin by the riches of his grace. I should go slower so you really let it sink in. When these things become real in us, God, there should be such a thanksgiving and a joy rising up in us. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. We have been sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise as a pledge to that inheritance. Even when we were dead in our sin and our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. That's verse 5 of chapter 2. Verse 6, He raised us up with Jesus and seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He raised us up Seated us in heavenly places. You have been saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Verse 8. Verse 10. We have been created by Him for good works. Verse 18. Though through Jesus we have access in our spirit to the Father. Verse 22. We are being fitted together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And then he goes on in chapter 3, verse 20, 14 through 21, and he prays a prayer for the church in Ephesus. And the prayer is that I, I pray that you would know, that you would know and you would understand how much God loves you. How much God loves you, each and every one of you. How much He loves you. If you would just get it and understand how much He loves you. And that there is a power within us, the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in our lives. And he tells us that God is able to do abundantly more than we can even think or imagine. But the whole emphasis is on the love of God. And he prays this prayer for the church in Ephesus. Now, the church in Ephesus, just a little context, Ephesus is a major city. It is a major, major metropolitan area. There are all kinds of temples. As a matter of fact, one was considered one of the seven wonders of the world was the Temple of Diana or the Temple of Artemis. It was magnificent. They had a, a, an arena, a stadium, if you would, that would seat 50,000 people. And it was filled with wealth. It was a trade center. People were passing through it all the time. It was just a mile from the Aegean Sea, so there was, it was a har- port city, a harbor city. It was a city with all kinds of evil in it. The temple worship, temple prostitutes, pride. And here's this little church, this church in Ephesus, that's relatively new. They've had some good teaching. Paul was there to help establish it. He left behind some good people to help nurture and and, and teach them more. And then he actually came back and he spent three years with them. This was a pretty good church. But he's writing this letter to them because they're not a perfect church. Even a good church isn't a perfect church. And he's writing them, and the primary exhortation is we need to be in unity. We need to be community. We need to have unity. 
Why? Because of what I just wrote to you and taught you in chapters 1, chapters 2, and chapter 3. And when we get to chapter 4, he makes a major transition in the book of Ephesians. The focus goes from what Christ has done for us to how we then ought to live. I want to read the text is in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And notice the word that it starts with is, Therefore. Therefore, because of everything I told you that God through Jesus has done for you, remember all that stuff, remember all that stuff, remember all that stuff, how much He loves you. I'm praying that you understand how much He loves you. Therefore, He is changing from theology and doctrine to duty. Like any good teacher, He is telling you, here it is. Now, here's how it should be looking in your life. This is how you should apply it in your life. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, there is one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, there is just one of all of these things. Therefore, therefore, I beseech you. It's like he's pleading with the church to walk worthy of the calling. It's interesting that he starts out, if you... Look in your Bibles if you have them or when you refer to them. He starts out in chapter 4 saying, Paul, I a prisoner of the Lord. And he started chapter 3 the same way, reminding the people as a prisoner of the Lord. And the reality is he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus. He's literally a prisoner in a prison in Rome. So why is he telling the people, I'm a prisoner of the Lord? I think, and this is an I think, not... Word of God, necessarily. I think one of the reasons he repeats that is to remind us as Christians, as as members of this church, even in Ephesus, you know what? There could be some suffering. There could be some hardship. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. And he's literally sitting in a prison in Rome. Therefore, now, here is how you should live. All of these things that I've just told you, this is how you should live your life put into practice all of these things. When we look through chapters 1, 2, and 3, what you'll see is a couple of things. One, he's talking about because of what Christ did, we're a new creation. All who have accepted Jesus Christ, all those things I read apply only to those that have accepted Christ. They're available to all, but only available in the sense that you can receive it is when you receive Christ. He says these are all all for you. You're a new creation. And then he spends some time, especially in chapter 3, because if you were no, up till this time, up till the time of Christ, there was a chosen people of God, but it was the Jews. And then with the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and even in his teachings before that, and then certainly in the teachings of the disciples and Paul after that, it was all about unity, the Gentiles and the Jews. There is no more separation in Christ. Unity is stressed. He came to bring the world together in one through the ministry of Christ. He's laying all this out to the people, the church, and Ephesus. 
And in uh, uh, verses 2 through two, chapter 2, 11 through 18, he reminds them over and over, the Jews and the Gentiles, we're one. Hard teaching for him to receive, especially the Jews who were filled with pride and religion. What do you mean, those pagan Gentiles? The least they need to do is get circumcised and become Jews. No, he's saying, no, 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 no. It's not about any of that. It's not about any works of man. It's about one thing, Christ. And in Christ, you received all these things, all these benefits that are talked about in the first three chapters. And trust me, I didn't even list them all. There's so many benefits for us as a believer. That's what he's done for us. So we're going to look at three things Paul urges the church to do in light of this. We're going to look at his call to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We're going to look at his command to forbear or bear with one another in love. Some translations use the word tolerance, show tolerance for one another. And then the third one is to eagerly preserve unity within Christ's church. So we're going to start with the walking worthy. Worthy of your calling. He reminds him he's a prisoner of the Lord. I believe to let him see that there's going to be challenges and difficulty, but he implores them. Depending on your translation, you might read words like implores, urges, pleads, entreats to walk worthy of your calling. This, these words that Paul uses to walk worthy are really a metaphor. And what they're a metaphor are, are, this is how you should live your life. So when you see Paul in his writings talk about this worthy walk and how to walk, he's saying, this is what your life should look like. This is how you should walk it out. And as you read the rest of the book of Ephesians, you're going to see him use that metaphor numerous times. For example, in Ephesians 4, verse 17, he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. And he's basically saying, you know, the Gentiles, they walked any way they wanted to. Whatever they thought they wanted to do, that's how they walked. That's the way they did it. Don't walk that way. Don't walk like that. He says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant. Walk as children. Walk in love. Ephesians 5, verse 8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And the last one I want to mention is in chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Oh my goodness, we need to walk wise in these days because the days are evil. Basically, that metaphor, and that's the only reason I wanted to share that, he uses it over and over and over again, and it, it means literally live your life in such a way that you stand out from the world. How is our walk? How is your walk? How is my walk? Does it look like the world's walk? You know, <clears throat> sometimes people used to laugh and point out very clearly the way me and my father walked alike. You know, whatever it was, they made it clear that it was a little funny. And guess what? Watch my son Ethan walk. There goes Mike from about 60 years ago. There's a gate that we pick up. We walk in a similar way. What he's saying here is, 
we should be walking a walk that's Christ-like. It's Christ-like. We're going to walk a life. And it's interesting he uses the metaphor to walk because this Christian life that we're living is a journey. And really, until he comes back or we go to him, it doesn't end. We are never going to reach the ultimate perfection, no matter how prideful we are, until Jesus comes back. It's a journey. But until then, we're to be walking this life that looks like Christ. Walk as a child of God, really simply put. And he's continually reminding, I mean, really, after all Jesus did for you, this is the way you should walk. The second word I want to mention is bearing with one another in love. Paul gets a little bit more specific about what this worthy walk should look like. He says, with all humility, with gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. I, I think, and again, it doesn't say this explicitly, but I think the implication is pretty clear that I'm not putting, putting something into Scripture that's not here. I think when you read that, with all humility, with all gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, this isn't a walk that we walk alone. We're walking this with the church. We're walking this out with other believers. He is telling the church in Ephesus, this is the way you need to walk with the body of Christ. This is how we should be walking. God calls us individually. We need to respond individually. But guess what He's building? He's building a family. He's building the family of God. He's building the bride of Christ. He's bringing in a bunch of individuals. That's why no church is perfect. Because I'm there. You're there. We're there. Perfection doesn't exist. Bearing one another, knowing we're not walking this walk alone. And he is so concerned because he knows we're not perfect. The church in Ephesus, Ephesus wasn't perfect. I mean, how many of you could stand up and declare boldly with all confidence that our family is perfect? My family is, well, the perfection left with me. We're not perfect. No church is perfect. You know why they're not perfect? You know, in a church like this, with this many people here, you know what? There's some true believers here, and there's some that aren't. Boy, that causes differences. Could really cause some differences if we're not walking worthy. You know what? In a church this size, there's some believers that are very mature. They've been in the Word for many years. They've spent time in communion with the Lord. And there's new believers that are immature believers. Boy, that leaves an opportunity for division, strife, criticism, judgment to enter in if the church isn't walking worthy. You know, there are some people here, probably me as chief, that are just foolish sometimes. We do things that are just crazy. Believe it or not, sometimes some of us actually sin. (laughs) Sometimes it's actually towards others in the church. And boy, do all these things give opportunity for division and strife to enter in. We all have opinions and ideas of what it should look like. I mean, you ever have teenagers in your family that think they know how the family should look better than mom and dad? Maybe. Some of you haven't had teenagers yet. Bless you, and you will have. But the families aren't perfect. All of these things are there, and they're present. 
when he says to endure or, or tolerate, now remember, he's not talking about sin, okay? He's not talk- Even when sin is present, we need to confront it, but we need to do it in love as part of our walking worthy before the Lord. But he's talking about all these differences that have this potential to cause division and strife in his church. And it's really easy because we're humans and we're flesh. We get filled with pride. It's really easy easy to point out all the flaws and imperfection in other groups of people, other churches, other communities, individuals in the church that are a little weird and quirky. Anybody here quirky? I can be very quirky. (laughs) And, And somebody could be very quick to say, I don't like that. I don't like what she did. I don't like what he said. I don't like the way they walked right by me and didn't say hello. How arrogant are they? Next thing you know, we're out the door. We're looking for another church. We're trying to move into another family. And guess what? We take all of our garbage with us. And gee, that next family is just as bad as the last one. Or we just isolate ourselves and say, you know, I'm tired and I'm sick and tired of putting up with all that immaturity, all those imperfections. I'm all the, I feel judged every time I walk in. I'm not going back. I'm just going to isolate. I, I might be taking this too far so you can measure this, test this. But it appears the way he's talking about a worthy walk. If we're not walking with the body, we may not be walking a worthy walk. Because all of those things are words that would define the way we interact with other people. We do not want to isolate ourselves. We're to bear with one another in love, with humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with one another in love. How many of you know there's different personalities in this room? And we don't all click. We've got different temperaments in this room. I mean, listen to all these things that I've described as differences here, potential differences that could blow up a family, blow up a church. Paul says, I want you to strive to walk in unity. Bearing one another. And I won't go too far with this one because I could really stir a hornet's nest up. But you know, sometimes you guys have different opinions than I do. I mean, some of you, believe it or not, don't agree with me politically. (laughs) Go figure. What's wrong with you? We all don't have the same opinions. You know what? We're not supposed to have opinions that are all the same. We never will have opinions all the same. You know, there are some things that we just got to realize that we're not going to agree on. But I am going to walk worthy. I'm going to walk in love. And I'm going to walk in forbearance. If it's truly just a matter of opinion. We can't be dividing and get divisive over opinions. Why should we bear with one another like this? Why should we do this? Well, there's many reasons, and he lists a bunch. But in particular, because we are eager to maintain the unity. That is the third thing. We are eager to maintain unity. The first thing that might catch your attention here is we don't create it. He's not telling you guys and me to create unity. What he's saying is, maintain the unity. Well, where did that unity come from that we're trying to maintain? He says, you should be walking in unity and maintaining this unity that is in the bond of peace. If we are here as believers and if we're the church, we should have this one thing in common. We have found peace with God because of the work of Jesus Christ. 
in the bond of peace, we all are at peace with God. We've all accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. That impact brings unity. The Holy Spirit, if we've been born again, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. There's one Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. There should be unity. It's there. It's there practically. Positionally. Now are we living it out? And this is why he's saying, and there's so many different words here, be diligent to preserve. Go to different translations. Be diligent. Make every effort. Endeavor. Do all you can. And you hear the strength of those words. To do what? Keep the unity that's there because of God, because of Christ, because of the Holy Spirit. And you know why he has to exhort it so, so strongly? It's hard to do. It's hard to do. It's hard to keep unity. The more people you get in the family unit, the more potential there is for a lack of unity. As the local church grows and gets bigger, man, alive, when we were only a 60, 70 of us weirdos meeting in that blue church downtown, we had unity. Might not have extended beyond the walls, but we had some unity. All of a sudden, you're 100 people. Then you're 150 people. And then all of a sudden, uh uh-oh, where'd they go? What happened? Now, there's reasons people go from church to church, leave church. I get that. And there are legitimate reasons. I get that. But at the same time, all of a sudden, there's much more potential for strife, for division, that we aren't walking in the love that we're supposed to walk with for whatever reason. And it's easy, especially if I don't like confrontation, I think I'll just walk. I'll just leave. It happens. We need to really evaluate ourselves as the body of Christ. Are we walking in love when there's differences of personality, differences of maturity, when people actually sin, maybe against us, when people say things that are hurtful, do things that are hurtful? Paul is saying, whatever you do, strive. Strive to remain in unity by the bond of peace. And he started out by praying that they would know how much God loves us Love is the bottom line in this. We will never maintain the unity that God desires in His family if we don't love each other, if we don't love people. You may not like everybody the same. You may not like me, (laughs) the person next to you. You may not like them, but if they're a brother or sister in Christ, you are called to love them. Love them as Christ loves them. To love one another. This peace that we have is by the Holy Spirit living in us. It's a peace that was secured by the life of Jesus, His death, His burial, His resurrection. It's a peace that's applied to each one of us when the Holy Spirit calls us and seals us. It's all there, and we're called to maintain it, do all that we can to keep it. Whatever the cost, keep it. Keep peace in the body. He concludes, Paul does, by reminding us of this source of our union. In verses 4 through 6 that I read earlier, he says, you know, there's one body. We can't divide that. There's one spirit. There's one hope. The hope in Christ. There is no other. There's one Lord and one faith, one baptism. And then Paul saves the very best for last. He says there's one God, one Father, 
one God and one Father. And we're called to unity through Him. We have been reconciled to Him. Think about who you were before Christ. And even if you were a pretty good person before Christ, you were going to hell. The Bible's clear. Think what He's done for you and me. And He says, because of that, live a life. Walk worthy of the calling that you have been called to. Community, in the biblical sense, is really the only reasonable response for what Jesus has done for us. When there's true community, there's both freedom and security. I would like to think there is freedom and security and victory, the family at victory, the body of Christ here, that we are striving to maintain the unity, that we feel free enough to share with one another, secure enough to know that we're safe. That's what God is calling us to. That's part of what should be our house. Last week we talked about sharing the gospel message. This week it's about unity and striving for unity. The Victory family is truly called to be that type of church, to live it out and walk a walk worthy of the calling that's on our life. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we can only be what you've asked us to be. We can only walk a walk that you've called us to walk by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit working in us. Father, I pray that we would continually surrendering our lives to you, laying down our lives before you and saying, not my will, but thy will be done, Lord. That we would walk in love. God, that we would see people the way you see people. God, that we would see people with the compassionate eyes of Jesus Christ. That we would not be quick to judge, not be quick to criticize. God, that we would watch our tongue that we would walk worthy of the calling that you've called us to. You have called us to be the bride of Jesus. You have called us to be the children of God. Help us, God, in our humanness. We all will fail. God, we will all fail. But help us be quick to repent, to forgive others, and do all that we can, all that we can, to maintain the unity in the body of Christ. Father, I pray as we leave this place, we remember we go as part of a bigger body of Christ. We go as part of your worldwide church. And we know, God, there are so many differences. But that we would go walking in love. God, we pray that you would give us divine appointments as we go this week where we can share the hope that lives in us. That we can not only talk about the love of Christ, but we can demonstrate it. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all that you've done for us. All things that we could never do for ourselves. And we just pray for opportunities to share that with others. So as we go, God, I pray that we go in the bond of peace to bring glory and honor to you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.